Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, the Yolanda to your Steve. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Let's do a weird duet about... I don't I don't even know. I don't even know. Everything is weird in this this latest episode because uh this season we're talking about the films of 1992 and here we are at our flop episode talking about uh the biggest or at least one of the biggest flops of 1992 and really one of the more infamous flops of all time which is Toys from writer director Barry Levinson a passion project for Barry Levinson that he was finally able to make in 1992 after a string of previous successes and was not uh, was not able to do that prior. And I feel like this is a common sort of flop subgenre, I guess, is like passion project from director who gets a lot of clout, right? And then suddenly they are like, I can make this weird thing that nobody wants. And they do. So <laughs> Sometimes they turn out well, we right? Sometimes they sure, turn out Sure, sure. Well. Sometimes they turn out well, but I, I feel like that's something that maybe we, I mean, in a weird way, Heaven's Gate is like that, that we talked about last season, uh, which is a much more sort of large scale failure, I guess you could say. But uh, similarly, a director who achieved a lot of success and got to make the project that he wanted and and that was what he ended up with. So toys, not a hit for Barry Levinson uh, or Robin Williams, who was, of course, a huge famous star and who we just talked about a couple episodes ago in the in our Aladdin episode and he was the main star of this so it was even Barry Levinson aside this was a, a big Robin Williams star vehicle it was released at holiday time and uh targeted to families which maybe was not the best idea maybe we'll talk about that in a little <laughs> bit but it was it was definitely a failure it grossed 23.3 million dollars on its budget of 50 million and opened in sixth place in its first week at the box office, which is quite bad. And also like Heaven's Gate, it was nominated both at the Razzies and at the Oscars. Uh, And I feel like there's got to be at least one other movie that we've talked about that ended up in that kind of odd position. But it was nominated for Worst Director at the Razzies for Barry Levinson, and it lost to a movie called Shining Through, which also won Worst Picture, which I have never even heard of. Do you know that one, Jason? No. What is it about? Tell me. Uh, it's. I just kind of made a, a, a quick glance at it. It's a, like a World War II thing with Michael Douglas. It didn't sound like something that would be obviously a disaster, but I guess it must have been, I think, based on a, a book that was popular at that point. But certainly forgot you know toys i think still has this big reputation as like oh that was a known failure but that shining through i don't know that anyone is really familiar yeah and and i question i could see giving this like a worse screenplay nod but like directing it's probably one of the strengths of this movie right well i mean certain aspects of the directing visually maybe but the directing of performances or the construction of the film like editing wise and stuff i mean a lot of other things that a director would oversee are not done well here no it's not uh barry levinson's finest moment no (laughs) certainly certainly it's not uh but it was also nominated for two oscars for best art direction and for best costume design, it did lose both of those. Uh, Howard's End won for art direction, and Bram Stoker's Dracula won for costume design. And you know, I think we'll talk about this more. But certainly, that those aspects, the the sets and the costumes, are the best parts of this movie, or at least to me, they are. Yeah, I think the sets more than the costume, and I would also say the music's quite good. The music is good. Yeah, and I, I was wondering. I don't think this is the case, but. I was wondering if this was maybe conceived as a musical at one time, because it seems like the kind of thing that could be the, the, the tone that this is aiming for with the, the whimsy and everything and the, the larger than life characters who you could imagine them breaking out into song. And there are original songs here that, that sort of relate to the plot, but I, I don't believe that was ever the intention. Well, there's also an opening sequence at some type of Christmas play that doesn't really have anything to do with, uh, the movie except that it's bookended and i'm still confused on why that's in there josh 
Yeah, I don't I don't know either. And this movie was released at Christmas time in 1992. And maybe it was something that they added in there because they thought it could become a, a holiday favorite or something like that. I think technically it takes place around Christmas, although right. they don't really refer to it beyond that opening scene. So and don't you think it? I mean, that's such a minor change that would have been helpful to it. Like, oh, no. He's taking over the toy factory and, you know, he's going to ruin it before Christmas. Little tweaks could have gone a long way. Obviously, it needed big tweaks, too. But there are certain structural elements that could have really helped this thing out. Right. Yeah. You would think that being Christmas time would be a major big deal for this company that makes toys. But it it is really not referenced uh, beyond that opening sequence that has an original. And I was wondering, too, if this movie had become a bigger hit, I wonder if that opening song... I think it's called The Closing of the Year. That's like a, a Christmas-themed song. It was quite catchy. I could have seen that becoming a big like Christmas favorite song, but of course it's not. And that was sung by Wendy Malvoin from Wendy and Lisa, of course, of Prince's backing group that uh, put out so many hits in the 80s. Yeah, and she does a great job with that. And it's, uh, I think, is it is it Trevor Horn who worked on a lot of the music in this film and uh, and and wrote or co-wrote that song? It's a very, I mean, we're in 92, but it's sort of a 80s hangover sound, I guess you could say, in a lot of the music in this film. Well, he wasn't part of the revolution, though, Josh. No, no, no other Prince-related people involved in this in this film. And uh, the music definitely doesn't have any of the uh, funkiness of Prince. There's no funkiness in this movie. Yeah, I, I, I know we'd have to go back and watch Purple Rain again, but uh, Wendy, you know, between this and that, really... Uh elevating her career as a actress i well she doesn't really act in this film she just sings <laughs> she, she doesn't song. really act in the other one either does she no. <laughs> i guess not i don't remember but you anyway. know you mentioned this as a uh, christmas song like could this have turned out as a christmas song had they leaned into christmas maybe they could this could have been a christmas movie that we would still be talking about but um instead we're talking about it as a giant flop Right, right. And I think that is the thing that maybe it was the studio that thought, oh, this could be a Christmas thing. And it just it just completely, uh, completely failed. And and the other thing about Christmas movies is that if 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 it's something that like a cable channel or whatever feels like they can slot in every Christmas, a movie that's initially a failure can become one of those holiday favorites because people just see it over and over again. But I don't think that ever happened. I don't know that TNT was playing this every Christmas in the 90s or anything like that. Well, yeah, Josh, remember when we were talking about it and you were like, hey, Levinson, a Jew trying to make Christmas movies. I thought that was pretty insightful of you. Thank you. Yeah, I did not say that. But uh, I think there's a long history of Jews making Christmas themed entertainment. Uh, wasn't Irving Berlin, writer of White Christmas, one of the most famous uh, Christmas songs ever? Wasn't he a Jew? I have a Christmas movie that we're shopping right now, and I'm uh, I'm a Jew, so you know you are, yeah. So I think that's a long tradition, really, that Barry Levinson is failing to include himself in. But uh, no one liked this movie, <laughs> um, Jews was, or Gentiles. No, yeah, no one of any religion enjoyed this film. Uh, not only was it poorly reviewed by critics, it, audiences didn't like it either. It not only it failed at the box office; it got a C plus from CinemaScore, which is the audience polling service. And that's a very bad result because those are the people who are excited to see it on the first weekend. And that's what they thought. It was uh, got two thumbs down from Siskel and Ebert. And Siskel in particular was very, he said he was like angry at this movie, that that was how much he disliked it. So uh, Ebert actually was a little more positive. He felt like it started well and then it fell off. And uh, so in his review, he said, Toys is not in any ordinary sense a children's movie. It uses toys and childhood to make some deeper points about the way our society exploits innocence, about how we are cynical marketers of naivete. All of these notions are to be found in toys, and yet the movie is curiously unclear about them. The opening scenes create a completely original world, and then the second half of the film invades that world, not with fresh imagination, but with tired old conflicts. There's a curious residue of dissatisfaction after Toys is over. It opened so well and promised so much that we're confused. Is that all there is? The film seems filled with ideas, but what are they exactly? The production creates a wonderful world, but doesn't make its purpose clear. Well, Josh, you said that Siskel was angry at it. What, what do you mean yes. by that? 
I mean, I think he was he was angry at like why does a movie from these talented people turn out this way? Like, yeah, I I was hoping for something more that that it has so much potential and they've just completely squandered it. And and I think Ebert, you know, was was talking about how oh it starts well and I kind of like the first half and Siskel was just shutting that down. He didn't like anything about it. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Um, it is, as we said, beautiful looking and uh, a very cool setting in that uh, area of like uh, Washington State where it's just green and it looks like uh, the grass is overgrown. So you're, it's like a world inside of a world type thing. So uh, there are visual elements and, and those sets that were worked on for a year by Fernando Scarfiotti. Those are amazing right so there are some very cool visual elements the rest of the movie does not live up to yeah i i agree about the visuals i think i'm not really with ebert that even at the beginning of the movie with the, all the setup it, there's nothing really there that makes you think oh this is going to turn out to be an interesting story and uh it is trying to have some sort of commentary about society i guess but um it's not really effective. And certainly Barry Levinson, at least later on, has been able to make movies that have a smart and humorous commentary on society. But this is not uh, one not of them. just later on before this, too. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, he's someone who could do that theoretically, but it's not succeeding here. And that region in Washington is the Palu region. I don't know if it's Palu yeah. or Palouse, but it looks very cool. I could see Dave and Gina getting an Airbnb up there sometime. There you go. Maybe maybe the toys factory is uh, the Zevo Toys Factory is available for Airbnb. Oh, that would be um, a great fun. Airbnb. It would, oh, except yeah. that's not there, of course. That's on a soundstage somewhere, but and doesn't exist anymore. But it is beautiful, and it's amazing because it almost looks like it's some kind of alien world or whatever. You don't realize, like I, I would have if they had, if I had read that that all those exteriors were also created on a soundstage. I would have believed it. Like it's kind of amazing to to read that that's a real place that that you can visit. Yeah, I want to go. See you guys. Later. All right. Okay. Good road <laughs> trip there for us. <laughs> so Kenneth Turan in the Los Angeles Times said, what should be guileless and gentle feels overly calculated. Characters meant to be lovable come out lobotomized, and the whimsy is laid on so insistently the movie nearly chokes on it. Like several recent films, Steven Spielberg's Hook being the most prominent, Toys is a top-heavy celebration of childishness as well as childhood, an overproduced plea for simple pleasures and homespun virtues. But the contradiction inherent in this inevitably kills spontaneity. And without that, all efforts at the requisite light touch are doomed as well. The production design feels elaborate to the point of oppressiveness, overwhelming Toys' already slight story and making it seem even more insignificant than it otherwise would. I mean, I'm not, obviously, I disagree with the production design elements of it. So, um, no. Yeah, I'm with you that that it's it is elaborate, but I feel like that's the only part that they get right, that the whole thing is meant to convey that sense of elaborate whimsy and the production design succeeds at it. But the writing and the performances do not. Right. You want you want the rest of those elements to level up, not the production design to level down. Right, right. And I don't know what exactly he's asking for, though. Um I think maybe not a coincidence that the other movie that he mentions there, Hook, also stars Robin Williams. He was uh, sort of this go-to person for adult whimsy. I don't know. I, As we talked about in Aladdin, I don't really care for Robin Williams, even though I enjoyed him in that film. And I think this movie encapsulates a lot of what I don't like about him. Oh, uh, well, so, I mean, that's a good point. But also, I think, you know, one of the criticisms was that Robin Williams wasn't at his Robin Williamsiest in this one. And I think that's totally fair. Like they should have let him go wilder. They should have really worked on that character. So I think had he been more Robin Williams, that it would have been a better film. Well, I think part of the problem though is that his Robin Williamsness, as they get a bit of in this film, doesn't fit the character. That this character is supposed to be sort of childlike and naive but robin williams is doing bits with like ethnic accents and celebrity impersonations and the kind of stuff that he does and it doesn't work at all it doesn't if you and if you got more of that if you let him go loose like he does in aladdin it would it would fit even less 
but he's not childlike and naive in this movie. That's the whole thing. That's part of the problem is that, you know, oh, he's not ready to take over the company, but we don't see any point where he is childlike and naive and that he has to grow up. He's already grown up and he's sitting in board meetings and contributing. And so like, I think that's one of the problems is that they didn't go far enough out with that character. Well, right. But I think you're, you're right that it doesn't come across, but I think it's meant to be that he's childlike and naive and they haven't succeeded in making that clear. But I don't think making, getting Robin Williams to do more Robin Williams shtick would have contributed the proper way to that character. I mean, I'm not saying shtick per se. I'm saying attitude. I mean, it's not in the writing anyway, so he would have to do the improvisation, right? So, but I think the attitude, the energy, the kind of, that kind of uh, childlike wonderment, none of that is there with this character. Right. The childlike wonderment is what is missing and what is meant to be there. But I don't think that comes from Robin Williams typical. I mean, I, I, I'm saying shtick because I'm negative on him, but his typical style, let's say, I don't think that that really lends itself to that kind of character. I'm saying that maybe you needed not Robin Williams to play this character and that might have worked out better. I don't know. I don't know. Would you have cast Josh? I, I, I don't, I, you know, I just was thinking I hadn't prepared to, address this per se but i think he's well, meant to be sort up, of Josh. i did i did that's fair um he's meant to be sort of like willy wonka ish i guess and so i mean gene wilder obviously i think that sort of tone that wide-eyed but willy wonka is still weird and kind of creepy sometimes but that that wide-eyed sense of wonder is what you want so i'm not sure who in 1992 was a big enough star along the lines of robin williams that you could have cast but maybe someone Bill Murray. Bill um, Murray. Bill Murray could have maybe done it. Right. Because in a uh, way he does it in Scrooge, but less, you know, in reverse in a way. Right. Yeah. I mean, in Scrooge, he's a very cynical character. Right. And comes. then he becomes to, to love it. That's what I mean. Yeah. In reverse. But honestly, you know what? We agree. The character isn't right. But I don't. Whatever blame you 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 want to put on Robin Williams, Josh, who's dead. Shame on you. Um you know, I'm it starts him for being dead. No, nah, I mean, you you took some shots at him there, Josh. Uh, well, but I'm uh, saying it when he was alive, he sucked. But, you know, it's not. But uh, but now that he's dead, you're you're all for him. Is that- <laughs> no, no, no. I'm I'm saying I'm not I'm not criticizing his state of uh, aliveness or <laughs> his or, stasis. I'm, so. <laughs> right. I'm criticizing the work that he delivered. But I'm saying I think it starts with the script on this one. And when you yes, were talking yes, about what does. elements that Barry Levinson as a director maybe failed at was capturing not just that tone as a writer, but also in bringing that out of the performers to get the most life into this movie. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it certainly goes down to him and he's the one who is directing Robin Williams to improvise or to add those things to scenes or whatever. I'm sure if he was adamant that they didn't want that, then he could have conveyed that and he didn't. So you're absolutely right. It starts with Barry Levinson not understanding the tone for this movie and not giving that to the actors so that they can portray it properly. So absolutely. Well, there you go, kids. So finally, uh, Peter Travers in Rolling Stone was a little nicer. He said, to cut toys a minor break, it is ambitious. It is also a gimmicky, obvious, and pious bore, not to mention overproduced and overlong. Levinson works best close in. The visionary art of Tim Burton and Terry Gilliam eludes him. Like and Justice for All, another Levinson curtain script, toys mistakes bombast for grandeur. No amount of brilliant production design can disguise the smug hypocrisy of an anti-war tract that decries the killing games of vid-age children and then offers up a climactic battle between hawk toys and dove toys for their movie delectation. Well, I've never seen Injustice Fraud. I'd like to see it, you know. Yeah, I never have either. But Levinson has had success in the field of uh, military and war movies. He did Good Morning Vietnam with Robin Williams, where you got that Robin Williams-y-ness at its most effective, right? Right. Um, I haven't seen that either, actually, Good Morning Vietnam, but certainly that was a big success. Yeah, I like that movie. I'm sure you'd trash it just because Robin Williams is dead. But uh, (laughs) I don't know. I just think there's like, uh, he's right, but at the same time, he's 
you know, the world looks good. That's not the problem here. I, I don't know. There's right. just a lot of other problems here. There are, there are. And and that criticism at the end is something that came up in Ebert's review too. The idea that this the message of this movie is against, you know, warlike toys, and yet the big climax is about having the toys fight each other. That 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 Leslie, uh, Robin Williams' character and his allies succeed by destroying the war toys of the general, Michael Gambon's character. So I I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like that's a sort of beside the point criticism, but I guess it makes sense if that's Levinson's ultimate big message for this movie that he fails to convey. Yeah, I didn't get that it was, I mean, anti-war. I could I could go with the anti-children going to war, you know, but like, I didn't see it as a big message movie. I saw it as a failed entertainment project. Well, I think it's both. I think it's a failed entertainment project and a failed message movie that I think it is trying to make a message. And it is, I think, anti-war because even from the start, the general character is so fixated on the idea of how we gave away Vietnam and that kind of stuff. And he's he's interested in being in the military, not because he feels like there's larger goals to accomplish or that the military can bring about stability. He just wants to fight. And that's what he's consumed by. And that's definitely an, uh, an effort at satire. And this is one of the problems with the movie, right? Because uh, Leslie's dad, uh, Donald O'Connor Zevo, right? you know, he has a choice to give Leslie the company or give it to his brother. And he gives it to Michael Gambone's character, the brother. And it's like, it's none of this is a surprise. He knows that Michael Gambone's character is a war hawk, right? So like, why would he give him the company? Like, if anything else, like even Robin Williams character says like, oh, I thought he'd give it to Owens or something like that. Right. You would think like, hey, Owens, we're going to put you in charge. You're going to train Leslie when he's ready. You know, we'll turn the company over to him. The whole thing is just uh, a matter of convenience that like didn't work. And again, a little structural thing, like maybe he wants to give it to Owens. And then the brother like finds, you know, something in the will where he gets it or whatever. So you could have done things that would have made this at least more sensical from a script standpoint and a story standpoint. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I think this goes back to what you were saying earlier about how Leslie doesn't really need to grow up, that that's the reasoning that the father gives at the beginning of the movie for not giving Leslie the company. Oh, he's not mature enough. And if I give it to the general, he'll help Leslie grow up and mature and then be able to take over the company. But there's no arc in this film of Leslie maturing or growing up. He already seems, even though he is whimsical and childlike in some ways, he certainly seems to understand the business that the company is in and how to engage in adult uh, responsibilities. So uh, yeah, the the whole premise, you're right, is faulty from the start. Uh, There's just different ways they could have gone, you know, if they wanted to make him out there and weird, like they could have done something where like, you know, oh, he's the owner's uh, son and we have to tolerate him, but none of us relate to him. He's just the strange guy. And then, you know, when you have the enemy come in, now they see that his, un- you know, Leslie's unorthodox methods are something they can get behind. There's just a lot of different ways they could have gone that that they chose not enough, Josh. That That is very true. So, Jason, you actually saw this movie in the theater, right? I did. And I remembered not liking it. And uh, Josh, guess what? You still didn't like it. I don't like it now. Yeah. Why did you go see this? Because <laughs> I was like, I was like 12. I would see anything. Right. Right. So oh, okay. I like going yeah, to be. I, mean, I, I was like, wondering if there was something specific about this movie that made you want to see it. Well, I mean, you know, Jamie Foxx's first appearance in film, uh, breakout performance yeah. <laughs> by LL Cool J. What more could you? No, I mean, look, the, the previews were good, right? You know, there was yeah. the, uh, you know, the the commercial was so iconic that the Simpsons spoofed it. Right. So, yeah. Um, and, and the look of the movie, like we just have talked about is cool looking. I would, when I was 12, I like going to the movies. So, so leave me right. alone, Josh. I no, like, no, movies. no, I was just wondering. I have I a podcast about movies. What do you want from me, Josh? <laughs> I saw plenty of bad movies at that time too. I didn't see this, but I don't know why exactly. If I don't recall thinking, Oh, that looks terrible. I don't want to see it. I just never did. So this was my first time seeing it. Dave, did you see this movie when it was re- initially released? I know I did. And I'm pretty sure it was in the theater. And I actually think it might have been our like 
Chinese food and movie on Christmas. Uh, Jewish Christmas. For 1992. Yeah. Yep, that's yeah. right. Yeah. But I, I don't remember a single thing about it from back then. I, I always remember as like that weird Robin Williams movie where he's a toy. That's what I thought. I thought he, he was a toy. And uh, watching it this time, I was like, oh, that's not what it is. And no, it's not good. That's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not, maybe that would have yeah. been something. That would have been a better movie, I yeah, think. Yeah, could be, could be. Yeah. Uh, anything else on the background of this film that you want to mention, Jason? Uh, no, I mean, Josh, you had said, you know, it's interesting that it got both Razzie and Oscar nominations um, and that this was a passion project that Levinson had been trying to get off the ground for a decade. One of five movies that he wrote with his ex-wife, uh, Valerie Curtin, who we talked about when we did 9 to 5. Wasn't she on the TV show? Yeah, she was mainly uh, an actor, although she worked a bit as a writer, especially with Barry Levinson, who she had been married to. But yes, she was one of the right. stars of the 9 to 5 TV show. Right. They did Injustice for All, Best Friends, Inside Moves, and Unfaithfully Yours, along with this script. Um, and in the Aladdin episode, we mentioned that uh, Robin Williams didn't want to be promoted heavily as a voice actor in Aladdin because he had this movie coming out afterwards. And um He's lucky they promoted him in Aladdin. <laughs> yeah, he made the wrong yeah. choice for which movie to put his uh, clout behind. So uh, definitely. Well, we'll come back then in a moment and talk more of our general thoughts on toys. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1992, we are talking about the biggest flop of the year, which is Barry Levinson's Toys. And I think one of the main themes here uh, that not only that we're addressing, but that a lot of the critics at the time addressed is just the, the failed promise here, that this is something that could have turned out well, that there are a lot of things here that you would want to see. And it just it is executed very, very poorly. Yeah, one thing I was thinking about that, Josh, is not too long after this, we had the uh, Joan Cusack character in Adam's Family Values, which is like so great. She's such a fantastic, yes. weird, awful villain. And like here she's playing a very strange character that doesn't really add up to anything. Right. And it's just everything's we've talked about Robin Williams, you know. There's really no chemistry with him and Robin Wright in this, who, if you're watching this, I don't think you think, oh, Robin Wright's going to go on to be one of the best actresses of the last 30 years, right? You know, uh, just everything just kind of misses here. Yeah, I mean, the both of those things you mentioned, the Joan Cusack character who, for the whole movie, I mean, we can spoil this, I guess, but for the almost the whole movie, we believe is Alsatia, the sister of Leslie who theoretically also could take over the toy company, but she is very much childlike to the point where watching this movie, I kept thinking, is she meant to be like autistic or, or mentally disabled in some way? And is, is this possibly a slightly offensive portrayal of that? Um, I was wondering that too. Yeah. And we then were hoping. we were, yeah, we were, I was hoping <laughs> for something horribly offensive out of this film. Um, yeah. But no, but then you learn at the very end that she's a robot which is possibly more offensive to the portrayal of potentially, I don't even know. It's so, it's so muddled that it's, you can't, it's not offensive because it's completely off. And learning that she's a robot both does and does not explain much of her behavior previously in the film. I think if you go in knowing that, you, it doesn't seem, I don't know. Right. I'm robots can't get offended, Josh, because they're not sentient. And once Well, no, are, I don't mean a, a robots getting... I mean, I mean, you know, uh, autistic or or other uh, mental disabilities portrayed as someone who is actually a robot. So say, it's so, not. right. So say, Josh, we went the, with the thing that I just said. Right. And Leslie is, you know, this kind of uh, emotionally stunted. Uh, he sees the wonder of the world. Right. And he relates more to the kids than adults. And his dad was like, look, he's not ready to take over. Owens, you're going to have to keep watch on him, right? And then, you know, Gambone's character comes in and we have the heavy. Then doesn't that make a little more sense for the Joan Cusack character too? Well, I never really related to anyone. So my dad built me a sister, right? Like little things could go a long way here, but there's just so many um, 
mistakes that they make over and over again, the way that um, uh, the way the toys get into the the room to spy on Leslie, like how do they even get in there? We don't know, you know, and it's just I just nothing really makes sense. And when you're talking about that Leslie character who we know is an adult who and un, un, understands the world and we don't see that whimsy throughout, why is he giving this? motivational patent like speech to the toys at the end it's just like a That's set piece a, that doesn't work at all right it's unearned yeah. and it doesn't work it's such a terrible moment because the toys can't hear him right <laughs> and so he's giving this speech for whose benefit exactly right obviously it's for the audience's benefit but within the the sort of world of the movie like who is he talking to and why? And it's also just a, a terrible, annoying, like probably mostly improvised Robin Williams bit that goes on for way too long. And yeah, I mean, by that point, the movie is, you, you, you're not on board with it anymore anyway. But yeah, that's just one of the worst moments. in the movie. Right. And again, had we made him this alienated type who kind of was comforted by his toys for all these years, then you could see like, hey, you know, We've had all these good times, but now I need you to step up for me. It's just unearned and unmotivated. And I keep thinking of like the emotional resonance that you get in Toy Story where you're like, oh, he's going to give up the toy. I'm going to cry. <laughs> right. And it's like right, the right. complete opposite of this. Yes. Yeah, you're right. I mean, because we don't get the sense that those toys meant something to him. They literally stumble across those toys in like an empty room. They're like, oh, look what we found here. Now we're going to give an inspirational speech about it or whatever. And another thing that I hadn't even thought about until you were just talking about this stuff, the idea that Leslie is childlike or that he relates more to children. This is a movie about children's toys. There are no children in this film with any lines whatsoever. <laughs> like Leslie doesn't relate to children. He doesn't talk to children. We don't see children except in that brief moment where they're all playing the like video game where they operate the war toys. And even then, I, I think maybe one of them says one brief thing to right. Leslie when he asks like, what are you doing? Or how do you get points in this or something like that? But I mean, this isn't a movie where kids are a factor really at all. Right. So you have Gambone's character working on these military toys. What if he's working with all these kind of, you know, uh, serious business people to develop this? And on the other side of the building, Leslie is in focus groups with a bunch of kids, right? You know, now we're playing opposites and we're having fun and we're doing stuff that makes sense. And Josh, a, a further point that I need to make, and if you read my letterbox review on Go For Jason, these toys seem to have been created by someone who has read about the concept of toys, but has no real world idea of what toys actually are. Yeah, there's some weird like 1950s conception of like all these novelty items that kids would like. And yeah, I mean, just again, to your point, like we have a sort of focus group type scene at one point where Leslie is looking at all the different versions of fake vomit that the research team has created. But there's no kids there. There's no child who might buy these toys to look at them and assess them. It's just Leslie. And that scene goes on forever. Yeah. Tell me about the romance here, Josh. Oh, my God. Yes, I did want to get back to that because that's another just horribly misguided element of this film that Leslie and Robin Wright's character who works in like the copy room, I guess. Uh, they have this weird romance. They have no chemistry whatsoever. Their entire love story seems to involve just her laughing at him. And then there is a sex scene. There is a sex <laughs> scene in this movie. Why? Why does that happen? Uh, they should have played with some toys in that. And that seemed very <laughs> probably do. I wouldn't have surprised me if he would have brought out a wind-up vibrator or something in the middle of that scene. Uh, a wind-up vibrator. You might have uh, found a new market for something there, Josh. Yeah, why not? Uh, sure. Hey, hey, hey. Uh, How did you feel watching that scene? What was your reaction? What was your reaction as a child when you watched that scene in the theater? Do you recall? I don't even remember it. I had no recollection of it, you know. And yeah. and like I said, like Robin Wright is a phenomenal actress. And like, if you, if this is the first thing you see her in, you're like, she's, she's going to just be, uh, you know, a passing love interest in one movie. Right. 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 But certainly that scene, like watching it, I was just in disbelief. Like 
he's taken off her clothes and they're going to throw her bra on top of. A I mean, he says toy. he does. He does say at one point, like he tells her he wants to get laid. Right. So, like, again, yeah. we don't know this character who's a kid is not a kid at all. So, no, no. And even I guess even saying just get laid, that's a piece of dialogue that I don't know. Kids might not pick up on. But I feel like that scene is so clear that even if kid a kid audience, a theoretical kid audience doesn't know what's happening, they're going to know something is happening and wonder what the hell is going on. So it's just a weird thing. And I, I wonder if Barry Levinson conceived of this movie as a movie for adults and the studio said, no, this is a movie for kids. And so we end up with this weird clashing tone. Josh, what was the sea monster? The sea monster. Oh, right. The thing in the well or whatever. Yeah. yeah, I don't I don't know what the hell that thing is. Do we ever see it at any point? Maybe a bit of the end and it and that goes nowhere. You know, there's this whole thing where Leslie and uh, Joan Cusack's character have to, you know, fake out the monitors, right? So that's that was what I was referencing, the Yolanda and Steve video, right? Um, but it's it's so funny because you could tell they just wanted to make a talking head style video for no point, right? They go and they do right. this, but literally before they do that, they put up a fake, you know, wily coyote style wall right in front of the real wall. So like they've already solved the problem before they go to this climactic moment for them to solve the problem. And it's like, he, he you know, Barry Levinson knows better than that. He's written better movies and made better movies than that. He made, Rain Man and, you know, Diner. He made good movies and Good Morning Vietnam. Like, I don't understand. It just all got away here. And then later, Wag the Dog, you know? Right, right. Wag the Dog is the one I think of that has that that tone that I think he's aiming for here, where it's funny and there's wacky characters, but it's making a real political point that comes across. Um, but yeah, I think you're right that they just wanted to, they thought we got Robin Williams, we got Joan Cusack, and like, wouldn't it be funny if they starred in this talking head style music video? We've got Trevor Horn here who can, and Thomas Dolby, I think, co-wrote that song and they can write this music. And that's why it felt to me like they almost wanted this to be a musical. And I think whether it had been a musical or whatever else, it needs to be more heightened. It needs to be more weird. And also if it were weirder, then the plot inconsistencies would be less important because you're just like, well, it's just crazy. It doesn't matter that this doesn't make sense. But it's not weird enough, but it's too weird to just be like this kind of fun, normal kids movie. Yeah, I, I, it just misses all the way through. Um, I really have nothing else to say about it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's fair. I don't know. Do we want to talk about uh, LL Cool J? This was one of his first uh, acting roles as the son of the general who is also himself a military man. All right. Keep saying, and then, and then switch sides for, for no good reason, really. I'll give it, I'll give it a positive note. They, uh, they showed right. a white father with a black son in the early nineties. That's cool. Like that's progressive. So. Right. That was, something. they also did essentially like invent drone warfare in this. Movie, right. Which that's is, true. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if that's good, but it's something. It's a legacy. Yeah. Obama. Right. Yeah. Obama. So he <laughs> saw this movie. It was formative for him and just like, wait, we could do that for real. What if we did that for real? Uh, yeah, we might as well just uh, just end this and uh, rate this out of five uh, wind up toys or five uh, beanies attached to pacemakers for poor old Donald O'Connor. I don't know. I, I, what kind of terrible toy do you want to rate this out of? Um, I don't remember any of the toys, so you can, you know, there was like a sound five, effects five jacket. Fake, fake vomits. Yeah. The, oh God. The sound effects jacket. Robin Williams yeah. is so unbelievably annoying in this film. I wanted Leslie to, uh, lose everything because <laughs> I hated him so much in this movie. Hey, you just won't let it go. Let the man rest in peace, Josh. <laughs> let's, let's say five, uh, five sound effects jackets. I, I give it two, two out of five. And those two stars are really just all for the production design, which is amazing. 100% agree with you. I'll also say the music, right? The 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 oh, set, yeah. the music, the yeah. locations, uh two uh what are we sound jacket that leave me sound alone. Just smoking jackets maybe, fake vomits, I don't know, novelty items of some kind. Two novelty <laughs> items. Yeah. Dave, what do you want to rate this? Two of those as well. I think it's the first time we've all lined up on something i'm sure before. we have at one point in the past Ma maybe at some point yeah but yeah but we can two you know mostly the music and the score and soundtrack but 
Yeah, it's just it's a mess. This movie. It is. It is a total mess, and uh, we'll uh, we'll probably talk more about that. We'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of toys. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1992, we have been talking about Barry Levinson's massive flop, Toys. And uh, even though this was a huge failure and it was all Levinson, it was his big passion project, it didn't really derail his career. It seems like he went on soon after this to make some more pretty big hits. It was only much later that his career kind of declined in, in more recent years. But I mean, later in in the 90s, he made Disclosure, he made Sleepers, he made Wag the Dog. All three of those were were really big hits. And and it shouldn't derail his career. Like, I hate this. You make one bad movie and you're in actor's jail. Like, you know, he made a bad movie. It didn't work. And now he's back to making uh, good movies. Right. And I know we're saying like, oh, his career is derailed, but he's very busy right now. He's kind of adapted to where content is right now right he was uh, exec producer and director on dope sick and he's got like multiple projects including francis and the godfather uh you know because we need another thing about the making of the godfather oh, God, going is that on what that is it's with oscar isaac and uh jake gyllenhaal and elizabeth moss he made uh he's in one giant leap which is a new show right it's sheila which is i think the narrative version of uh the woman from wild wild country so he's doing fine he's just you know moved over to a different type of content creation right i think as a filmmaker in like the 2000s he made a lot of movies that didn't do very well and you're right he's kind of shifted to be more of a producer uh working in tv i mean he started as one of the uh, as executive producer of homicide life on the street which of course was a, a major influential cop show so yeah in that realm he's he's done he's done well i think if you look at the movies he's directed once you get out of those past those big hits in the 90s there's a lot of stuff that i don't think i'd even heard of half of them um but i will say in terms of being a director his most recent film the survivor which is a biopic about this uh boxer who was a holocaust survivor starring ben foster that's an hbo max movie and and that was that was pretty good it was a solid historical drama kind of thing good performance from ben foster so he's certainly someone who and i'm sure this this is the case for these these tv shows he's a professional you get him in he's gonna do a good job bringing something to life uh you know someone else's story potentially i mean obviously we all know his last good movie was a film called bandits which I accidentally picked as Matchstick Men in the 2001 (laughs) series. But that is his last good movie, really, if you look at uh, what he's done after that. And it's interesting because he did work um, as a writer in like the 60s and 70s on like those variety and comedy series, you know, where it's like everyone has a TV show and we're writing comedy sketches for them. And he's made so many bad, you know, if you look at this, and you look at envy, it just comedy wasn't really the the thing for him, it feels like. No, I mean, aside from Wag the Dog, again, where he really gets that balance of tones down, yeah, it doesn't seem like the case. But I, I will I will recommend The Survivor, which is his most recent film. So maybe that is his first good movie since Bandits. I don't know. Yeah, I recommend Bandits and like literally almost everything he did in the 80s. And um, you also have to recognize Diner was such a huge deal as an independent film. Because no one wanted to buy it. And then he just released it kind of, they released it independently and it became a huge hit. It's a major milestone for independent films. So Barry Levinson, a major figure. And uh, I'm happy he's still working in whatever capacity it is. And it just goes to show like guys like him should be able to make movies. And, you know, if it ends up on HBO Max, then, you know, that's good. And I'm more excited for these kind of long form stories that he's telling now anyway. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen a lot of those movies of his from the 80s. I have seen Diner, although not in a very long mm. time, but I do remember enjoying it. Well, maybe after we're done with Feel the Burns, we can do a Barry Levinson takeoff <laughs> podcast. I don't know. I feel like who could possibly follow Ed Burns <laughs> as the focus of a podcast? I mean, once you've done Ed Burns, where else is there for you to go? So, Josh, we obviously talked a lot about Robin Williams in our um, Aladdin episode, um, so we can kind of 
if you if you want to hear more, you can go check out that one. Michael Gambone is more famous now than he's ever been, I'd say. Right. As yeah, others. maybe. I mean, because of the Harry Potter movies, really, he he took over from Richard Harris, who passed away after the second one and played uh, Dumbledore, the mentor to Harry Potter and the head of Hogwarts. And so that brought him this massive international audience. And uh, the younger version of Dumbledore is in those new terrible Harry Potter related movies played by Jude Law. But it wouldn't surprise me if they managed to find some way to bring Michael Gambone back into those films as well. Yeah, well, that's, um, you know, there are wizards, Josh, so you can can do whatever you want. But, um, you know, and I think we've talked about Joan Cusack before because of uh, the John Hughes episodes, but She's great. We love her. Not, uh, Oscar nods for Working Girl and uh, In and Out. And yet again, Josh, I will always recommend Gross Point Blank. I will 100% agree with you on Gross Point Blank. She was, I mean, everything about that movie is great. And I mean, people know her. I think she's gotten a lot of uh, recognition for her voice work in the Toy Story movies as Jesse. I mean, in all sorts of spinoff projects. With that and she's always a welcome like kind of offbeat presence she was in this kind of forgettable netflix teen christmas movie called let it snow where she plays like the weird truck driver and she just gives all the teen characters advice and it's like ah oh, that's great i'm happy to see her do that that was from like a couple years ago so yeah we, we we're a big fan and you know you had mentioned ll cool j I mean, what yes. a varied career this guy's had a you know iconic pioneer rapper to uh host of the country music awards and lip sync battle. And uh, what was it? Was it in the house? Was that his show in the nineties uh, where he was in maybe the sitcom yeah. or something? So yeah, he's had a weird, weird career. He's on uh, NCIS Los Angeles for the past, what, like 10, 12 years at least. I mean, he's just, that's like his main thing now, just being yeah. on an NCIS show. And he's so. a go-to award show host, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And he's, uh, you can see, I mean, he's got a lot of charisma in this movie. I think the character is poorly conceived by, again, going back to it's Levinson's fault and Levinson and Curtin. But, you know, you can see how his charisma would have translated and people would have seen this movie and maybe not thought it was good, but thought, yeah, we could cast that guy in something again. Yeah, uh, I agree with you on that. And I think even in Jamie Foxx's little one or two scenes, you see that there's potential there. Robin Wright, we said this one was a little flat for her. We talked about her in Forrest Gump and all the great stuff she's done from, you know, The Princess Bride. And, um, you know, uh, next up is uh, another Zemeckis movie called Here, which is all about the people who inhabit one room over a period of time. Hmm, I don't know about that. But uh, yeah, she's I mean, House of Cards really, especially with Kevin Spacey's uh, issues, really became her show. And that was a huge thing. And she made her directorial debut with a movie called Land last year that she also starred in. That was, it was all right. It was, I mean, certainly it was like a good showcase for her and everything. So a very talented person. Yeah. Nice to see a couple of legends. Donald O'Connor, of course, from Singing in the Rain, some of the best stuff ever on film. Jack Warden, one of the great character actors of the 70s, being there. 12 Angry Men. He got an Emmy for Brian's song. And uh, I like him in Shampoo a lot also. I haven't seen Shampoo, but yeah, he's in a million things and he does not get very much to do. He plays the father of uh, Donald O'Connor and Michael Gambon's characters who's bedridden and just kind of mumbles in like one scene. And then you think he would play. This is another structural problem with this movie. You would think he would have some authority over something, but we never see him again. What happens to him later in the movie? Nobody knows. He's so important. And then we just completely forget about him. And yeah. Leslie doesn't even know that he's alive, I think, or, or Alsatia doesn't. They have no alive. relationship. To a fun character, bitch, Yardley Smith, who is the voice of uh, Bart Simpson in this one, right? Yeah. Or Lisa Simpson. Lisa Simpson. Yeah, sorry, yeah. that was a uh, cowabunga man. Don't have a cow. I meant Lisa Simpson. I always liked her on Herman's Head also. And... Herman's Head, yeah. I watched like <laughs> yeah. every episode of Herman's Head, which I'm sure does not hold up at all. <laughs> And speaking of uh, actors with varied careers, Debbie Mazar, who's Nurse Debbie, has been on everything from Goodfellas and Entourage to her cooking show, Extroversion. So lots of uh, interesting pieces that just did not come together on this one, Josh. Yeah, Debbie Mazar is the like sexy nurse who has sex with both uh, Michael Gambon and LL Cool J for some reason. She's that's a weird character. 
I, I liked her on uh, Younger. She was on all the seasons of that show that recently wrapped that I was uh, a fan of. So always great. I think she's going to be who is who is playing her in the Madonna biopic that's coming up. I forget. There's some interesting casting for somebody who's going to play her in Madonna's movie that she's making. Right. About they're all life. They're buddies, right? They're buddies. So. Yeah, exactly. Going way back. So that'll be uh, that'll be something. And uh, yeah, as you mentioned, Valerie Curtin was one of the stars of the nine to five series and mostly has worked as an actor in like TV guest appearances and stuff. Although her last acting credit was in 2006 and uh, her final writing credit was this movie. (laughs) So it did not, uh, did not do any wonders for her career as a writer. She did not do anything else after this. So uh, maybe Barry Levinson decided not to work with her anymore. I don't know. Well, Josh, on that note, I have nothing more to say about this. Yeah, I uh, I think that's fair. This is a is a bad movie, and it's it's also kind of a lost movie. We had to go through quite a lot of effort to watch this movie because it's not available anywhere to stream. It's not available to rent digitally. The DVD is old and out of print. So I will say, though, if you go to Letterboxd, there are people who love this movie, and this is the kind of movie that is weird enough that I can see it getting this like cult following i don't think it deserves it but it has those elements that i could see that happening if it eventually gets some kind of wider availability on some streaming service or something i don't know why it doesn't have that when i started watching it i was like i i have a feeling i'm gonna like this more than the other guys um but it just didn't work out that way but yeah i thought i would be one of those people the reassessment people like this is a weird misunderstood masterpiece but no yeah, those people are definitely out there, though. They're definitely out they there. They are. Yeah. People suck, Josh. Okay. I thought you had some <laughs> other point that you were trying to make, but that's fine. We can just leave it that's with that. That's the biggest point I have. So. That's important. All right. So that's Toys, and that's this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Check us out on social media. Yeah, why not? As I already said, my letterbox, which has not reassessed this, is uh, go for Jason. I'm at Jason Harris Comedy or J. Harris Comedy on all the more traditional social media platforms. My website, go for Jason, is stuck in the Zevo Toy Factory somewhere. Uh, but I think we'll do something with it at some point. AwesomeMovieYear.com, that is serviceable as a website. It works. Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. Uh, my website, joshbellhateseverything.com, uh, also uh, stuck somewhere in the past, but um, yeah, maybe look at it. Uh, Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook and at SignalBleed on Twitter and at SignalBleed on Letterboxd as well if you want to check out my non-reassessment of toys. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. Jason, what do we have in our next episode? Josh, I believe we're going to can, but we're not going to yes. talk about the Palme d'Or winner. We're going to talk about the winner of the Best Director Prize that year, which was Robert, that year being 1992, Josh, because this season's about 1992. <laughs> it's Robert Altman, mm. one of the most legendary and most important figures in film history with one of his best films, The Player. So tune in next time for The Player, and thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.